convenient collection. Only $2.99 or free if you have Kindle Unlimited. Search for Blood Tingling Tales Complete Series on Amazon or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. (laughs) I am your host, just your friendly neighborhood Maniac on the Loose. Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Craving Part 2 of three. Chapter 11 Jimmy Crackcorn. A Madisonville psychiatric hospital van drives down a barren side road. Jack Winters continues to leisurely whistle Jimmy Crackcorn. He slows when he notices a car ahead on the side of the road. A man in his fifties dressed in a heavy jacket, ball cap, scarf, and sunglasses stands by the car. A restrained grin crosses Jack's face as he pulls over. The man walks to Jack's passenger side window and removes his sunglasses. He smiles and comes across as very friendly. Hi there, buddy. I'm so glad you stopped. I got a flat, but I don't have a jack. Can you give me a hand? Jack smiles. Jack places one last bushy tree limb over the friendly man's dead, naked body. The body is a good bit off the road, as is the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital van, which Jack parked behind some trees. Neither the body nor the van are immediately noticeable from the road. Jack, now dressed in the friendly man's clothing, leafs through a fair amount of cash in the friendly man's wallet. He whistles as he walks to the friendly man's car, gets in, and drives away. Jack continues to whistle as he drives down a two-lane highway and merges onto an expressway. He reaches down and turns on the radio. He chuckles slightly at the report he hears. Jack Winters, dubbed by the media as Jack Frost, was convicted for a series of murders closely resembling those of notorious serial killer Jack the Ripper. Like Jack the Ripper, Jack Frost's victims were all prostitutes. 
Also similar to that of the Ripper, the bodies of Jack Frost's victims were often found mutilated. Again, for those just joining us now, notorious Chicago serial killer Jack Winters, better known as Jack Frost, is feared to have escaped from the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital early this morning. A police car passes Jack's vehicle in the left lane. Jack inconspicuously lowers his head and mildly turns it to the right, away from the vehicle. The police car continues past and quickly puts distance between them. Jack raises his head and removes his sunglasses as he looks at a sign coming up on his right. The sign reads, Nashville, City Limits. After parking the car in the long-term parking section of the Nashville airport, Jack walks to the closest large hotel he can find and enters the lobby. A steady flow of people mill about, just what Jack was hoping for. Jack, still wearing his sunglasses, puts his hat down over his forehead and flips the collar of his jacket up. He also moves the scarf around his neck, up just underneath his lips. As he moves toward the front desk, he picks a magazine up off the table. He opens it and pretends to read while covering his face. He approaches the front desk. May I help you? Room for one, please. Uh, for how many nights? Seven nights. And how will you be paying for this? Cash. Jack... Hotel key in hand, walks toward the hotel stairs, still looking at the magazine as cover. He stops in front of a lobby store with large fluorescent lights that read, Gift Shop, and enters. Chapter 12 The Chase is he still parked? Paul watches as the truck pulls out of the parking space. No, he's driving now. He's behind us. I'm going to turn left at the next intersection. Tell me what he does. Becky turns left and Paul watches for the truck. He's turning too. Oscar nervously runs his hands through his hair. Oh shit. I'm making another left ahead. Tell me if he turns. She turns left. He turned too. Oscar panics. He's one of them. Okay, another left turn coming up. She turns left. What's he doing? Paul watches on as the truck sits at the stop sign as they get further away. He's just sitting at the stop sign. Paul continues to watch, expecting the truck to move in some direction, but it stays still. Still not moving. I'm going to turn again up here. Keep watching and tell me if he moves. As Becky turns left onto a busy street, Paul watches the truck as it lurches forward and then continues straight. It didn't turn. Oscar jumps in before they can get too excited. He doesn't need to follow us. He can track us. Oh, bullshit. How can they track us? Oscar looks at Morgan. Him. Morgan rises up and looks at Oscar, confused. What? What about me? They can track him. Who are they? What the hell is going on? You've walked into a hornet's nest. It's a black ops situation. 
top secret. Hell, only a handful of people even know this project exists. I'm target for termination. Hold on, if only a handful of people know about this, why can't we go to the cops? I already tried that. They knew. Somehow they knew. They were going to kill me. Why do they want to kill you? I was brought in to work for a division led by a doctor named Howell. He's crazy, like a mad scientist. I started taking issue with their experiments. Anyhow, I know too much. They want me dead. Becky stops at a red light, puts her car in park, turns and points at Oscar and Morgan. You and you. Out. Now. Listen to me. I've heard enough. Get out. Paul leans in closer to Oscar and takes a strict position. You heard the lady. Out. Morgan grabs Oscar by the upper arm. We're leaving. He looks at Becky with a sincere expression. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for everything. Oscar steadies himself against Morgan's pull just long enough to give one last warning. Okay, we'll go, but let me tell you exactly what is going to happen after we leave. They'll kill us, and then they'll kill both of you. Why would they kill us? We don't know shit. I know that, but they don't. They'll kill you both, just to be sure. They don't even know who we are. They will. At the very least, they have your license plate number. That abandoned house I was at? It belongs to an old college roommate of mine's father, who I happen to know has been in a nursing home for months. I figured I could shack up there for a little while and be safe. So if they found me with that obscure of a connection, believe me, they'll have no problem finding you. A car horn blares from behind, startling all of them. Paul looks up and understands why. The light's green, hang on. Paul quickly exits the vehicle, hurries around the passenger seat, gets in and shuts the door. Becky begins driving and speaks sharply to the two men in the back seat. Here's the deal. I'm going to keep driving and you are going to tell us everything. The second I've heard enough, I'm stopping, and you're both getting out. Is that clear? Absolutely. I'll see to that. Morgan turns his attention to Oscar. Who am I? Oscar pauses and takes a deep breath before speaking. Dr. Howell created a programming chip. Once inserted in the subject's frontal lobe and activated, the subject would be presented with persuasion. We ultimately decided on a hunger, a craving, a craving that can only be satisfied by killing. The chip then releases information to the subject about who needs to be eliminated and exactly where they are. I never thought we would actually be able to do it. I guess I was so focused on whether or not we could, I never thought of the possible ramifications if we did. The moment Dr. Howell realized I was having second thoughts about it all, that was it for me. Morgan takes in a choppy breath. My God, I'm a murderer. I killed a man. Morgan covers his mouth for a moment as he tries to fight back his emotions. An innocent man. When? After I woke up in that field. Oscar thinks for a moment and then nods. 
Okay, so they obviously dropped you off at a distance to see how long it would take for you to reach your target. Oscar rubs his chin as he thinks. Tell me, was the man in the truck, the man you killed, was this the first person you saw after you woke up? Yes. And you thought killing him would eliminate that painful craving, yes? Yes. I didn't even think about it. There was no reasoning. I just did it. And how did you feel after you killed him? Guilty. How interesting. The power of the craving overtook the particulars of the information, causing you to kill the first person you encountered instead of honing in on your subject. When did you first realize who you were specifically supposed to eliminate? The next day. It started coming in waves. Once it started, it was fast. Oscar appears to be getting excited as he questions Morgan. He adjusts himself in his seat as he continues. Incredible. Obviously the chip needs some fine-tuning, but... He realizes his enthusiasm is inappropriate at this time, clears his throat, and calms himself. <clears throat> I apologize for my apparent insensitivity, uh, but the scientist in me finds this enthralling. You were creating assassins. That's just one of many possibilities, but yes, perfect assassins, killing machines, with no memory as to who sent them or why. And it doesn't even matter if they get caught due to... Oscar realizes he went further than he meant to and stops himself. Due to what? Nothing, nothing. I was just, um... Tell me or we're done. Due to what? Oscar hesitates and looks at Morgan. I'm not so sure I should say with him here. Morgan stares back at Oscar. He speaks decisively. Talk. Oscar swallows. He looks around at the others for support and gets none. Spill it. Oscar nods. Once implanted, the chip only lasts for 24 hours. Morgan leans in toward Oscar and speaks firmly. Then what? Oscar takes a breath. Tell me. Oscar realizes he must explain, and reluctantly continues. After 24 hours, the chip explodes, destroying any evidence of its existence by... He hesitates as he looks directly at Morgan, and then finishes. By killing the subject. I'd say you'll be dead later tonight. Take it out. I can't do that. Morgan grabs Oscar by the throat. Take. It. Out. Oscar struggles to speak through Morgan's vice-like grip. I can't. Morgan slams him against the back door window. Why not? The moment the chip is tampered with, it will self-detonate. Morgan holds his grip on Oscar as he thinks. Oscar's face begins to turn red. Becky watches the action in the rearview mirror as Morgan grips tighter, deciding whether to kill Oscar or not. She speaks gently. Morgan, let him go. Morgan looks into Becky's soft eyes and roughly turns Oscar loose. Why? Why me? Why did you do this to me? Oscar coughs and rubs his neck. He speaks through hampered breath. They called you the perfect specimen. 
Your parents died when you were young. No siblings, no wife, no kids, a loner. Nobody would miss you when you were gone. They kidnapped him. I don't remember that. I don't, I don't remember hardly anything. You wouldn't. Part of the procedure. Becky comes to a halt at another stoplight and turns when she speaks. How about Dr. Howell? Could he remove it? Maybe. I mean, if anyone can remove it without killing Morgan, it's Dr. Howell. He's the true creator, but I don't know. You have to understand that I'm not one of the higher-ups. I'm just an independent contractor who specializes in this kind of chip programming technology. I'm young, but I'm one of the best in the entire field. That's why I was recruited, but even so, I don't know any more than they needed me to. It was really incidental that I even overheard how they planned to use this technology. Mostly, I just assisted with the chip. Where is he? I don't know where his headquarters are located. They always picked me up at a designated location and blindfolded me before taking me. Shit. The others all look to Becky and see that she is looking out the rear window. The pickup truck from earlier has pulled up tightly behind them. Oscar begins to panic once he sees it. We're dead. Oh no. We're dead. They all watch as the silhouette of the man behind the wheel moves around. He appears to be talking on a phone and stirring around a bit, possibly even reaching for something. We're sitting ducks right here. He can get out of that truck any second and blow us all away. When I count to three, we all have to get out of this car and split up in four different directions. I think there's only one guy back there. He'll only be able to follow one of us. Whoever he follows, you have to lose him. Oh, and throw your cell phones in the trash. They might be able to track you through them. Oscar looks at his wristwatch. Okay, we'll meet one hour at the Griffith Hotel. Whoever gets there first, get a room and put it under the name of Brad Cardwell. We're all in this together. We'll meet there and figure this out. Becky looks at Paul, unsure of what to do. What do you think, Paul? Hopefully the hotel serves lobster. The direness of the situation motivates Becky to make a bold move as she leans in and gives Paul a hard kiss. You were right about our first date. Paul smiles, but Oscar breaks the moment. I hate to break this romantic interlude, but we don't have time for this. Oscar moves closer to Morgan. Give me your arm. Morgan reluctantly holds his arm out. Oscar pulls a pocket knife from his lab coat and quickly pleads with Morgan. Please, just trust me. He turns Morgan's arm over, palm side up. He immediately digs the pocket knife into Morgan's arm just below his elbow. Holy shit! Stop! Morgan grits his teeth as Oscar digs around for a moment and then extracts a small, blinking red chip. It's a tracking device. Paul and Becky look at each other. Any doubts they had about Oscar's story were washed away upon witnessing the extraction of the device. Let's just survive this. I'll meet you at the hotel. Sounds like a plan. Paul and Becky both startle when Oscar shouts. Oh my god! He's getting out of the truck! Run!
Blue sits in his pickup truck outside the abandoned house he knows Oscar Sweeney is shacked up in. He smashes the butt of his cigarette into the ashtray and lights a new one while he looks down at the beeping light on his tracking device, indicating that Morgan should be arriving at any second. Lou is slightly surprised when he sees a car pull up with at least three people in it. He identifies Morgan as he steps out and rushes into the house. Lou pulls out his cell phone, dials, and puts it to his ear. Dr. Howell? He's here but he has a couple bystanders with him. I have no idea who they are. Kentucky Plates, 220-KYZ. Lou's eyes widen as Oscar is hurled through the window onto the patchy front lawn of the old house. Holy shit, he just threw Sweeney through the window. Reckless. They're all in the car now. It looks like they're scuffling, hang on. Lou studies the movements inside the vehicle to get the best assessment of the situation possible. When the fighting stops, it appears that everyone in the vehicle is conversing. Lou gets back on the phone. He didn't do it. I can see Oscar Sweeney through the window. He's alive. Morgan failed. I don't know. They appear to be talking. This is getting out of hand. Permission to eliminate. Lou checks the cylinder of his 357 Magnum to make sure it is fully loaded, snaps it shut, and opens his door. He curses when the car drives off. Shit, they're driving away. Lou shuts his door, drops his gun in the passenger seat, and begins following them. They turn left, and he follows. They turn left again, and he follows. Damn it, I think I've been made. Yeah, they keep turning left. I can see them looking out the back window. Lou gets to the stop sign they turned at, stops, and watches them. They're still driving normally. Oscar probably hasn't convinced them yet. Lou watches as they turn onto a busy main street. He knows they're still watching, so he simply drives forward to hopefully alleviate their concern enough where he can sneak back up on them. He drives up two blocks and then turns left, before turning again onto the busy street their car turned onto. The red blinking light on the tracker gets faster as Lou drives wildly, weaving in and out of traffic to catch up with the vehicle. Eventually he reaches them at a stoplight. The driver made the mistake of pulling the car up very closely behind the vehicle in front of them. Lou pulls his truck up from behind, tightly pinning them in. He speaks into his cell phone. I got him, Dr. Howell. Permission to eliminate. Lou reaches into the passenger seat, picks up his gun, and begins opening his door. Thank you. Shock overcomes Lou's face as all four occupants of the vehicle in front of him jump out at the same time and scurry off in different locations. Shit, they're running. Lou throws his cell phone down and gets out of his truck. Shit. He quickly tucks his gun inside his coat. Stop! He begins giving chase. Paul runs to the nearest sidewalk and ducks into a busy doorway. He peers around the corner and sees a large, tough-looking man in a trench coat and a fedora chasing Oscar and gaining on him. 
An orchestra of car horns fills the air as the traffic light turns green and Becky's car, with all four doors still open, blocks the way. A police car activates its flashing lights and siren, maneuvers around several vehicles, and zooms past Paul up the street. Paul turns his head as he follows the path of the police car and spots Becky running down the crowded street doing her best to dodge the oncoming foot traffic. Paul instinctively yells out her name, but she is much too far to hear him over the deafening city soundscape. He watches on as the police cars stop by her. He loses sight of her in the mass of people, but can see the police handcuffing a woman, putting her in the back of their vehicle and driving. A concerned Paul whispers to himself, No, Becky. Becky runs down a sidewalk, often glancing behind her as she goes. She ran track in college and is making great speed as she flips through holes in the oncoming crowd like an all-pro running back. She spooks when the police car skids to a halt next to her, with its siren shrieking. She watches the policemen as they get out of their car. They seem to have their eyes on her. She decides to push into a particularly thick mass of people and walks casually along with them. She peers back to see the police officers who have singled out a woman who bears a striking resemblance to Becky. The police start yelling at her. Hey, what the hell are you doing ditching your car like that? You're causing a traffic jam. The woman takes offense, barks back at the officer, and becomes hysterical when one of them puts their hand on her arm. After a short confrontation, the police cuff her and put her in the back of their vehicle. Becky turns her head forward and flows along inconspicuously with the sea of people. Morgan turns into an alley. He gets to the end and looks behind him. It's empty. He turns the corner, stops, and looks around. He notices an art museum nearby. A series of people are entering and exiting. He looks around one more time and then enters the museum. He gazes about at the walls. There are an array of paintings, some simple, some elaborate. A mishmash of sculptures and collages also spatter the interior. He smiles at one of the patrons as he passes them and walks deeper into the building. Before turning a corner, he looks over his shoulder to see if he's being followed. He doesn't notice anything unusual. He walks further into the museum and blends in by looking at a painting. He stares at a delightful painting of a park landscape. A winding stone walkway, aligned with jungles of trees, fades into a dirt path surrounding a pond. The sun reflects off the tranquil water. The only disturbance are the shimmering ripples behind a family of ducks. Near the pond is a flower bed bursting with hues of color. In the foreground, a woman sits relaxed. Not a care in the world. Peaceful. Morgan's eyes begin to well with tears. Oscar is running at a feverish pace. He never bothers to look behind him. He doesn't have to. He can hear Lou closing in on him. It's all over, Oscar. Oscar is in full panic mode, covered in sweat and breathing heavily. The sound of Lou's footsteps get louder as he gains ground. I've got you now. 
Oscar's mind begins to race. Within seconds, he will be caught and killed. Lou will have no qualms with shooting Oscar right there on the busy sidewalk. There would be widespread panic and Lou would merge in with the crowd and disappear easily. Or he may simply knife Oscar if he wanted to draw less attention. Either way, this isn't a kidnap situation. The aim is termination. Oscar scrolls through his limited options on the fly, but keeps coming up blank. His goal is to survive, and every thought he comes up with has a near 0% survival rate. He can turn and take on Lou, but that contest would be a joke, not an option. He could scream for help, but Lou would just shoot him and that would be that, not an option. He can hear Lou breathing behind him. If he's going to take some kind of chance, he has to do it now. He glimpses at the heavy, fast-moving traffic on the street next to them. Oscar contemplates dashing into the street. Sure, there's an extreme likelihood of getting hit, but if he can get lucky and avoid being run over, he'll have a shield of cars to decrease his chances of getting shot, and a mass of confusion from the inevitable amount of fender benders this would cause. And Lou would certainly have a moment of shock to overcome. All of this combined might give Oscar just enough time to give Lou the slip. The risk level is off the charts, but drastic times calls for drastic measures. Lou's goal is to get close enough to Oscar to easily shoot him in the back of the head. If he takes a shot from too far away and misses, there will be panic and he might lose sight of Oscar. Lou is no marathon runner, but he quickly realizes that Oscar is as slow as a sloth and he'll have little trouble reaching him and turning his lights out. As Lou reaches the desired distance from Oscar, he raises his arm, aims for the back of Oscar's head, and is just about to squeeze the trigger when something unexpected happens. Oscar darts into the middle of oncoming traffic. Lou stands in absolute shock as tires screech, horns blare, cars collide, and drivers curse. The smell of smoke, exhaust fumes, and burnt rubber linger bitterly in the air. Lou stares at Oscar Sweeney, who was hit by a large SUV and smashed against another car. His dead body folds over backwards at an odd angle, nearly sliced in half. Lou overcomes the jolt of disbelief and returns his gun into a holster tucked inside his jacket as he looks at the street which is now beginning to fill with drivers and passengers who exit their cars. One woman vomits on the spot at the horrid sight of Oscar Sweeney's body. Lou walks away slowly as he collects himself. He takes a breath and removes his walkie-talkie-like search device from his pocket and flicks a small switch. The device immediately begins chirping loudly. The intervals of the beep are so close together that it's almost a solid tone. His subject is close. Very close. He picks up speed as he moves down the sidewalk until the red light becomes solid and the beep becomes a constant tone. He stops and looks around, expecting to see Morgan, but he sees nothing unusual. He then freezes as it dawns on him. He slowly looks down at his feet. Lying on the sidewalk in front of him is the small tracking chip with a flashing red light. 
Lou grinds his teeth as he steps on the chip, gently crushing it with his boot, which immediately kills the signal on his device. Lou looks back at the congested area where Oscar Sweeney's body lies. Touché, Oscar. Touché. Chapter 13 The Ripper Various hair coloring products, a crumpled razor package, shaving cream, scissors, and other toiletries litter the hotel room dresser. Jack Winters stands staring into the mirror. He runs his fingers over his now short, bleached blonde hair. He looks at his heavy five o'clock shadow, takes a handful of shaving cream, lathers it on his neck, and begins to shave it, leaving the jaw portions to grow into an eventual beard. The television is on in the other room. Jack listens to the news report about his escape as he goes about his business. Uh, Detective Doolin, you were the lead officer in the capture of Jack Winters? Oh, it was just dumb luck that we caught him. You see, Jack Frost... Oh, sorry, that's that's what we call him. Well, he was like a modern-day Jack the Ripper. He targeted prostitutes. I, I was assisting the Vice Squad on a completely unrelated prostitute sting operation. See, the prostitutes had a pretty nice operation going. They would lure a John back to a motel room. The John would be met by two men. Those men would proceed to knock out the John and rob them. We had a good idea as to who was doing this sting. We just needed to catch them in the act, so we had our men stake out the motel room we suspected that these crimes were taking place in. Well, it turns out that the person they brought to the room was Jack Frost, uh, Jack Winters. So, when we heard the disturbance from the room and kicked the door in, we expected to find the two muggers busting up the John. What we found was Jack Winters. He had killed both men and the prostitute, and he was... Uh, he was dissecting the prostitutes on the bed. It was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. And you tied these murders with some past unexplained murders, then? Yes, we, we found many mutilated prostitutes over the past few years. It wasn't difficult to tie him into at least a few of them, but it's widely suspected that Jack Winters has killed at least three dozen people. Probably many more. Do you have any idea as to Jack Winters' whereabouts? Well, well he's from the Chicago area, so some of us think he may return, but... He's smart. He, he's really smart. I, I, I don't expect this to be easy. The report flashes a picture of Jack Winters on the screen. The report cuts to an anchor man. If you see this man, do not try to apprehend him. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. The report cuts off to a shot of Dr. Franklin Grimm exiting the Madisonville Psychiatric Hospital and trying to get to his car. 
A gang of reporters surround him and begin peppering him with harsh questions regarding the escape, such as, how did he escape? Why did you allow him off the hospital grounds? How did you let this happen? Are you still claiming this is nothing more than a paperwork error? How could you be so careless with such a dangerous patient? Dr. Grimm does not respond, but rather fights his way through the uncivil crowd, pushes a reporter away from his vehicle, and nearly slams someone's hand in his car door as he abruptly closes it and drives away. We are still gathering information to what exactly happened to allow such a dangerous murderer to escape. Jack Winters stands in the corner of the room with a phone to his ear and a room service menu in his hand. I'll take the seafood platter. Bill it to my room, leave it outside my door, knock, and leave. Jack lies down on the bed and props himself up against the headboard. He watches the news report and grins. Chapter 14 Information Lou arrives back to his car and witnesses a frenzy of frustration. Becky's empty car and Lou's truck are blocking the intersection. Horns are blaring. Several people stuck behind them have gotten out of their cars and are yelling. Several police cars are there with their lights flashing. Multiple officers are standing in the vicinity, taking notes and directing traffic. As he gets closer, Lou can see that a tow truck is pulling Becky's car away. Lou heads directly for his truck and is approached by an officer. That your car? The officer points to Becky's car as it gets towed away. No, the truck is mine. I should haul you in for abandoning your vehicle. I didn't abandon my vehicle. They abandoned their vehicle. I tried to stop them. What did you want me to do? Just sit here and wait for you wonderful people to show up? Yes, that's exactly what you should have done. Now get this rig out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lou gets in his truck and begins driving. He takes a cell phone out of his glove compartment, dials, and puts the phone to his ear. You don't have to worry about Oscar anymore, but the other three got away. Dr. Howell sits at a console with a phone to his ear. Okay, get back here right away. He hangs up the phone and punches some keys on the keyboard. He stares up at a large screen displaying Becky's license plate number. Next to that is a headshot of Becky, her address, high school, college, and employment information, along with general information about her vehicle. The glow from the screen illuminates his face as Dr. Howell scrolls down further and scans over various pictures of Becky's family and friends, Paul among them. He picks up a phone. I'm forwarding you some information. If this woman or anybody else on this list turns up, notify me immediately. Dr. Howell hangs up and continues to scroll through the information on the screen as a loud metallic clang reverberates from a room in the distance.
Chapter 15 Do Not Disturb The glow from the television flickers on the face of Jack Winters. Still propped up with the TV remote controller in his hand, his eyes are closed and he is in a deep sleep. Outside of Jack's room, a drunken conventioneer staggers down the hallway. He stops at Jack Winter's room, 237. He mutters lightly to himself as he slips his card key into the slot. The light on the door handle, which he was expecting to turn green, instead flashes red. Oh, come on, you piece of shit. He notices a do not disturb sign on the door. He removes it and looks at it. Oh, come on, what the hell? I didn't put this here. The conventioneer pauses and looks at the white sheath from which he removed the card key. The number outside of it reads 337. He looks up to the door again, which clearly reads 237. Ah, shit, I'm on the wrong damn floor. Before staggering down the hall away from Jack's room, the conventioneer puts the Do Not Disturb sign back on the door. He does not notice that he hung the sign backwards to where it now reads, Made Service Requested. Chapter 16 The First One Here Becky enters through a giant gold revolving door into the large, luxurious lobby decorated in red. To the left is a busy front desk with a small line of people waiting. To her right, dominating the far end of the lobby, is a fireplace, and even though there is no fire, a few people are sitting next to it chatting. The lobby has a medley of various trees and plants placed densely around the walls which thin out as they reach the center of the lobby. Several plush chairs accompanied by end tables and lamps are scattered throughout. It's a perfect place for people to relax, talk, or read while having a drink, which is exactly what several people are doing when she enters. Becky looks around but doesn't immediately notice any of her party. She looks over her shoulder as she approaches the front desk. There should be a room waiting for me under the name of Brad Cardwell? The front desk clerk checks her computer. I'm sorry, there's no room under that name. Oh, I guess I'm the first one here. Okay, room for four under the name of Brad Cardwell. As the front desk clerk begins entering information into the system, Becky takes another quick gaze around the lobby and whispers to herself, Paul, where are you? Chapter 17 The Suits Paul enters into the hectic police station. It's the same one Oscar was at earlier. It's still as busy as ever with people swarming around like bees in a hive. Oscar was adamant that the police were part of this, so Paul is aware that this is a risk. But if they have Becky, he needs to find her. And after all, how much danger can he be in with a room full of people? 
He asks himself this question to reassure himself, but it doesn't seem to do the trick. He is cautious as he approaches the desk. The name tag on the man behind the desk reads, Sergeant Wojohowicz. He appears to be preoccupied, referencing some papers as he writes information down on a sheet. Excuse me. Sergeant Wojohowicz keeps working as he speaks. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm looking for a woman who was brought in earlier. I'm not sure if it was this precinct or not. Well, if she's not here, I can steer you in the right direction. So let's start by you telling me your name. And my name's Paul. Paul Cable. Paul blurted out his name instinctively, but immediately realizes that was an error. A fake name would have been a better idea just to be on the safe side. Sergeant Wojohowicz turns a computer on and types something on the keyboard. And the name of the young lady? Paul hesitates and thinks this through. If they have Becky, they likely have her identification and her name in the system. There should be no harm in simply stating her name and letting the man do a search to see if she is in custody. There shouldn't be. Should there? Her name is Becky Birch. Okay, let's see what we... As Sergeant Wojohowicz types her name into his computer, a loud beep cuts him off. He looks at the monitor, he squints, and appears slightly confused. He looks up at Paul, and then again at the monitor. Excuse me for a moment, Mr. Cable. Sergeant Wojohowicz moves at a brisk pace across the room. He stops at a desk and speaks to a woman. Paul watches with a perplexed expression as they look back at him occasionally as they converse. He can't make out what they are saying, but watches on curiously. The woman picks up a phone. Sergeant Wojohowicz turns and watches Paul as the woman speaks. She quickly puts the phone down, and then says a few words to Sergeant Wojohowicz. A plainclothed detective walks to the woman's desk. The woman points at Paul. Paul whispers to himself, Oh, this is not good. The detective says a few things to the woman and Sergeant Wojohowicz before walking toward Paul. He flashes a toothy smile as he gets close to Paul and holds out his hand. Oh, Paul Cable, I'm Detective Terry. I'll be assisting you with your issue. Paul shakes Detective Terry's hand, but is in full alert. Where is Becky? Is, is she here? Oh, don't be alarmed. We are aware of your situation, and we are going to help you. My situation? How can you be aware of my situation? The detective keeps his friendly appearance, puts his arm around Paul, and begins to guide him to another room in the station. Uh, just come with us, Mr. Cable, and we'll take care of this. Whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Paul pulls away from the detective and takes several steps backward. The detective continues to smile as he attempts to reassure Paul. I'm here to help. Please, Mr. Cable, just, just come with me. Paul backs further away. Look, I'm not going anywhere with you. We can talk right here. Now, is Becky here or not? <laughs> Mr. Cable, I'm, I'm going to explain all of this. Detective Terry stops speaking, loses his smile, and suddenly appears uneasy as he looks past Paul. Paul turns to see what the detective is looking at, and notices the two men standing near the entrance. One is wearing a blue suit, and the other is wearing a brown suit. They are both very serious. The blue suit approaches them with purpose. Paul Cable? Ah, uh, yes? 
The blue suit looks at Detective Terry with a blank expression. Don't try anything, Detective. Blue suit guides Paul in between him and the brown suit while keeping his eyes fixed on Dr. Terry. Well, looks like we got here just in time. They quickly begin stepping backwards toward the front door. Will somebody tell me what the hell is going on here? The blue suit speaks up. Uh, we're here to help. Just get outside fast. It's not safe in here. It's not safe in a damn police station? Hey, where's Becky? I'm not leaving without Becky. Uh, she's not here, Mr. Cable. If you want to see Becky again, just move. The brown suit opens the door and they hurry outside and then move with urgency to a nearby car. Get in, Mr. Cable. I'm not getting in until I know where Becky is. Alright, this is all weird as hell. The blue suit peers around as he speaks. Oh, we shouldn't be talking about this here. The blue suit lets out a breath, displays an expression of frustration, looks at the brown suit, and nods. Brown suit dials a number on his cell. Paul can't make out everything he is saying, but can distinctly hear him say the name Becky Birch. The brown suit hangs up the phone and shakes his head. You told the officer inside you thought Becky had been brought in? Well, yeah, yeah, I, I, saw, I saw her put in the back of a police car. There is no record of her at any precincts in the city. Do you have any idea where she is? Oh, hold on a second. Who are you guys? I'm sorry, Mr. Cable, but we don't have time for this. Look, I need to know who you are and what's going on. The blue suit nods. Oscar Sweeney told you some things, so you're cautious. That's wise. The blue suit looks around suspiciously. We can't talk out in the open like this. Blue suit and brown suit walk into a nearby alleyway. Paul reluctantly follows. I'm sure Oscar Sweeney told you about Dr. Howell. Paul nods. Did he mention that Dr. Howell was working for what he would have described as black ops? Paul nods. Yes. That was true at one time, but Dr. Howell is no longer with the department. He's gone rogue. He's conducting these experiments on his own. He's become unpredictable and dangerous. We haven't been able to zero in on his location. Right now, you and Becky are our best chances to find him. Now for God's sake, do you know where she is? Paul thinks for a moment. Blue Suit can sense his apprehension. You're safe with us, Mr. Cable. If we can locate Becky, she'll be safe too. There is a chance she's still alive, but time is running out. Paul doesn't say anything. His eyes dart around during his thought process. Oscar Sweeney was killed tonight. Paul looks up with concern. Did he know where Becky was? If he did, he may have told them. And if that's the case, we have to get to her before they do. I understand that you care about her and want to protect her, but the longer you wait, the less chance she'll survive. Beads of sweat form on Paul's brow, and he contemplates what to do and say. The only chance she has is with us. It may already be too late, but if it's not... Paul lets out a deep breath. Okay, I'll tell you. 
were meeting at the Griffith Hotel under the name of Brad Cardwell. Thank you. Blue Suit turns and begins walking away as Brown Suit raises a revolver with a silencer. He fires one quick, quiet shot. The shot hits Paul in the forehead. He falls backwards, dead, before he even hits the ground. Chapter 18 Bring Him to Me Lou enters the ominous building. He is on a cell phone and speaks as he shuts the door behind him. Brad Cardwell, Griffith Hotel. Got it. He pockets his cell phone as he clangs his way down the metal staircase. I have their location. Dr. Howell is watching a news report about the Jack Winters escape on one of the big screens on the wall. I want you to find Jack Winters and bring him to me. Lou wasn't expecting this response. It takes him a moment to get his mind around the request. He looks up at the monitor, reporting on the Jack Winters escape, and then back at Dr. Howell. I need a location. Dr. Howell picks up a phone. After a moment, he speaks. Alert me immediately, and I mean before any other party. The moment Jack Winters is discovered. Chapter 19 Housekeeping Sophia pushes a maid's cart. She stops outside of the room 237 and notices the maid service sign. She removes a clipboard from the cart, takes a master key from her belt, and proceeds to open the door. As she discreetly enters the room, she announces herself. Housekeeping. She walks deeper into the darkened room. She can hear audio and see the flickering lights from a TV. She turns the corner and sees a man lying asleep on the bed. She attempts to quietly back out of the room so as not to disturb him, but then stops and looks closer at him. The face looks familiar. She takes a few more steps and then stops in her tracks. He looks like the escaped lunatic, Jack Frost. His hair is different though. When she notices a hair dye container sitting in the trash, the blood drains from her face and her jaw drops. She moves briskly, exits the room, and ever so carefully and quietly pulls the door shut. The moment she hears it latch, she turns and bolts down the hall and bursts into the maid's quarters in full panic. Oh my god! Oh my god! She picks up the phone, dials 911, and speaks immediately after the operator answers. He's here. Jack Frost is here.
We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Be sure to visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for the free newsletter and receive a free book and movie. We'll see you soon. Very soon.